0: Great to see you. Last week, we talked about vision, first of two parts, thinking about vision. And of course, in 20 minutes, um, we didn't cover everything that we could say, but we focused on a number of um, key things. Uh, There were three particular things that I highlighted last week in terms of what are we called to be about as a church. And the first was our mission to help to call people to discover and follow Jesus. Uh, Next was to be raising up and releasing leaders. And the third was to be about starting new things. Jesus said this, I will build my church, a church so expansive with energy that not even the gates of hell will be able to keep it out from the message translation. So we're thinking about church. And last week, everything we thought about was local. That is, about us, G2, about what we are building here together, and about things in York. Uh, One of the things I've noticed recently in studying the history of the Christian church is that even from the earliest of days, uh, I think we see two common expressions of the church of Jesus Christ. The first is... Yes, something that is local. Initially, this was Christianized synagogues, as the apostles spoke to Jewish people about Jesus, and these synagogues became synagogues that praised Jesus. Uh, Then in time, it became other new Christian communities, which met in public places and in homes. And it's an obvious point that through 2,000 years of the history of the church, Local communities of people have always gathered together to worship in certain places at certain times. Uh, And often these became special buildings or a designated place or a special place and were often referred to commonly as just churches because they were the designated place where a congregation of people locally met to worship God together. And the word church, ecclesia, just means people called to God. So it refers to people, but these people were often known by the place where they met or the building that they met in. Twenty years ago, um, Amanda and I went on holiday to Tunisia, uh, and one of the things we did on Sundays, we thought, let's find uh, a local church. I heard that. uh, so we asked at the hotel, Are there any Christian churches? And they didn't know anyone. And then I asked someone else, and then I asked someone else. And eventually I was given this sort of handwritten bit of paper that just had a street address and a place and a little description. So we got in a taxi and went to this place. And then it was hard to find. And then we had to sort of go up two flights of doors. And then we knocked on a door, and a little, a little trap door in the door opened. And I said, Oh, good morning, we're here for the church. And the guy gave me a sort of, you're you're getting nothing back from me sort of look. Uh, And so there was a bit of a pause, a bit of a standoff. And then I kind of realized what was happening because we're in an Islamic nation. And so this this wasn't a sort of massively publicized church. There was a reason why it was hard to find. So I started, you know, telling him a bit of my testimony. I quoted a few Bible verses and I think uh, eventually he just thought, okay, you're, you're probably just here to worship and not arrest us or something, and then he closed that little hatch and let us in, and we got to meet at that church. And so that, that was a church, an actual church, meeting in a room hidden in a building, up a flight of stairs, um, without any labels on the outside. I've got a little video for you. Last week, I mentioned my friend, friend Theo, who's been planted churches uh, in Africa. So I pulled a video he took uh, a couple of weeks off, a couple of weeks ago off Facebook. So let's watch a little clip of his church. Okay, that was an amazing picture of a church, a village church. (laughs) Um, um, And these village churches that my friend Theo um, has planted... As you heard last week, he's planted 75,000 of them in the last 14 years. Uh, and these are, they often just carve out a little space in the middle of the common area of the village. They put some mats on the ground uh, and just enough poles to m- construct something to keep the sun off so there's some shade. And then that's where they gather to worship God together. So this, this idea of church, local church, a locally rooted, identified church is something that's local, permanent, commonplace, something that we've seen in every country around the world, That something that's existed at every point in 2,000 years of Christian history, is something which is there for everyone, includes all ages, and everyone is included in it. And when we think of church, this is the thing we think of most, and rightly so. But I think there's also another expression of church that we also see through history. And the word I want to pick to describe this type of church, the first is local. The word I want to pick for this type of church is movement. And movement is, is harder to pin down, but I want to try and describe and articulate some of what that means to you. We see it in the first few days of the early church because the apostles moved and went to people to tell them, about Jesus. Uh, the word apostle just means sent. So these were people whose job description was go. They were, they, were the, they were movement. They went to people to tell about Jesus. If you read through the book of Acts, you find it in Acts chapter 8 where there's a dispersion. The, the, the early Christians began to be persecuted after the martyring of Stephen the evangelist. And so the Jewish Christians are scattered because they're fleeing for their lives. And they spread to Judea and Samaria and a little bit further because they're just trying to find safety. And through that going, through that movement, the gospel they believed in spread beyond just local Jerusalem where it had been first heard. And others came to believe because of this movement. And we see it in the life of the Apostle Paul, who worked as an evangelist, raised up leaders, started new churches, and then from those churches took teams to go to other places to repeat the process. And we see it in the Northern Saints, who I mentioned last week, people like Cuthbert, Aidan, Patrick, and Hilda, who evangelized on the road, apprenticed and trained disciples who could do the same as them and started new things and moved on. Um, in European and Middle East history, we see it for a 1,000 years in the religious life of, of Europe through monastic communities that evangelized, trained leaders, and started new things. And so we have this repeating pattern of mission, calling people to discover and follow Jesus, training and raising up new leaders, and then starting new things. We see it in the mission societies of of. Great Britain in the Georgian and Victorian age era where thousands of young leaders um, gave themselves to go to other nations as missionaries, often at great cost. Um, Some of them that went with CMS, Church Mission Society, would pack their belongings not in a suitcase but in a coffin because one in three would expect to die in the place where they were going to preach the gospel. In in Britain, locally, at the same time, we see it in the lives of the social reformers, people like uh, Joseph Rowntree, father and son, John Cadbury, uh, Joseph Fry, and William Wilberforce, who created jobs, reformed working conditions, provided affordable housing, built schools, built hospitals, helped the poor, and abolished slavery because they were Christians who believed in the need for change in the society where they live. And today, of course, we also have modern examples of movements that are part of the spreading of this gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, Alpha, I also work for Alpha, uh, 24-7 prayer mu- uh, movement, Fusion, um, Archbishop's Youth Trust, some of the modern monastic movements, Christian festivals like New Wine and others, CAP, Christians Against Poverty, Compassion, World Vision, and, and many more expressions of church but church not in the local form but church in the sense of a movement of change so my point is that the church of Jesus has always had these twin dynamics two expressions the local church on the street corner there for everyone and embedded in the local community and a Jesus movement spreading growing multiplying and bringing change, and resourcing others. And through history of the church, it's almost always the movement that gives birth to the starting of more local churches. Church, the movement, typically gives birth to church local. And for example, if you've ever read anything about the monastic societies of Europe, that's how Christianity spread to every corner of Europe through monastic communities and through evangelistic friars and monks who spread the gospel and went to other places. And so typically local churches were the kind of the end products of the work of these movement and mission societies. And again, it's, it's, it's hard to um, uh, define and, and describe exactly what a movement is Because each one is varied and unique, they do and achieve different things. But I think if you look through the New Testament, if you look through history, and if you look at examples today, you do see some common traits that go with them. First of all, a big vision for the future. And movements and movement thinking tends to be about thinking big, typically focused on a Jesus cause, on evangelization, on poverty relief on justice. Um, secondly, I think you see in movements bold discipleship, or maybe even put it like this, bolder discipleship, a sort of an, in, an enhanced or a, or, or a stronger expression of longing to follow Jesus. So, for example, in the Middle Ages, if you knocked on the door of a monastery and said, could I join? They'd say, of course you can. We'd be delighted to have you. Our rule is lifelong celibacy, poverty, and and obedience. Welcome. Come on in. Now, if you want to join G2, probably all you need to do is tick a GDPR consent form to say that we're allowed to have your email address on file. The point is, movements typically had people who were often 100% sold out. They gave themselves in extraordinary ways through their discipleship for the cause and the mission that they wanted to perpetuate. I think movements tend to have an empowered leadership, a leadership that has movement, that's, that's going, not, not sort of like, uh, yes, we've, we've hired somebody to come and lead the church, but a, a leadership that's about moving from A to B and that is going and traveling in that direction. And lastly, I think movements are typified by hugely dynamic prayer. And I'll say some more about that in a minute. And my observation for G2, and as we've been away as leaders thinking about this um, in recent months, is that G2 carries some of the heart for both of these expressions of church. Obviously, local, a church that gathers in a place. Even though we don't own this building, we gather in a place, we, we do it habitually we're here people know where to find us what time we're here for everyone everyone's welcome all ages are welcome we we t- we tick the description of local church but also i think we often talk and think and start to act with the thinking and actions that go alongside being a movement in the sense that we want to help other churches we want to send people out we want to start new things we want to think big we want to be a, a catalyst for a vision for change. We're praying for revival, for the revitalization of the church, for the transformation of society. And we want to partner with others in doing the same. It's an interesting observation. that I think we have a, an unusually high number of people in G2 who, um, in their job, work for Christian movements, such as Alpha Fusion, the Archbishop's Youth Trust, the diocese, food bank, the bus stop, cap so it's it's I think it's something that's in our blood as G2 to be movement to be involved in sending others out to have a heart for something that's bigger than just what we are locally and of course the stats that we thought about last week tell us that there is an enormous need for this we live in an era where the church will go through massive change And large numbers of churches will close or will have to be brought back to life or revitalized. And we will need to be thinking not about maintaining what is as a static thing, but about re-evangelizing our nation and our society. I wonder if we can wander back a few hundred years. And someone you might have heard of, a a guy called Nicholas Zinzendorf, who was a German aristocrat. That's his picture there um, on the left. Uh, and although he was already a believer, one day as a young man, I think aged about 17, he visited Dusseldorf Art Museum, where he saw a painting by Domenico Fetti. And the painting was called e- "Echi Homo, uh, Behold the Man. And underneath, it's a portrait of Christ, it's on the right, and underneath it had the legend that said this, this have I done for you, now what will you do for me? And it was said that uh, Zinzendorf stood and stared at the painting for three hours without moving. Uh, and then at the end, he counted it as a profound encounter with Jesus Christ. He said it was as if um, the mystical Christ was speaking to him personally. He wrote in his diary, it was as if Christ himself was speaking those words, this I have done for you, now what will you, now what will you do for me, directly to my heart. And he vowed that day to dedicate his life to the service of Christ. A few years later, Zinzendorf, and he had a large country house and a massive estate, he allowed a group of a hundred or so Moravian refugees who were fleeing from some persecution to settle and live on his family estate and to build buildings and to, to do their work there. And that happened in 1724. Just jump forward a few years to 1736, and a man called John Wesley is on a boat going to America. And Wesley was a bit of a nervous evangelist at that point, and he was traveling with a company of Moravians. The Moravians had the cheapest tickets, and so they were living in the worst bit of the ship, and they had to do duties in order to be part of their passage. And Wesley noticed how Christ-like he saw them in their behavior, that when the sailors hit them or beat them or treated them harshly, they responded just with patience and love and calm. And one Sunday, they were having a service on the ship, and they were singing uh, psalms uh, during a storm. And during the storm, the main mast of the ship broke. And Wesley noticed that whilst the crew were in terror and he was in terror, The Moravians carried on worshipping and praising God. Their belief was, you know, live or die, our mission is in the hands of Christ. Two years later, Wesley's in London with some Moravians at Aldergate Street Chapel. And one of the Moravians reads out Martin Luther's introduction to his commentary on the book of Romans. And Wesley marked that exact moment as his own personal spiritual awakening he famously wrote these words in his diary at that moment i felt my heart strangely warmed i felt i did trust in christ alone for salvation so the moravians actually gave us john wesley amongst other things now jump back to 1727 and the moravians are living on zinzendorf's estate and uh, there was some strife in the community Uh, of these Moravians who who lived and worked in groups according to what their craft was, whether they worked with wood or whether they um, grew food, etc. And so the, the community was just in a disharmony. And 24 young men and 24 young women covenanted to pray an hour a day, filling the full 24 hours of the day for a month. Their age was probably older youth or, or maybe just into student years. So these were, very, these were young people who took it upon themselves to solve the problem of their community by giving themselves to pray. And so they committed to pray around the clock in unbroken prayer for a month. Some of you may know, but if you don't know, just give me a guess how long you think that prayer meeting lasts. Just shout out. Now I said if you didn't know... <laughs> Good guess, Dave. The prayer meeting did indeed last for just over 100 years. This will be better in the uh, 6.30 service. We'll do it differently. <laughs> can you imagine that? Can you, can you imagine a prayer meeting that starts with you and finishes with your great-great-grandchildren and is unbroken prayer for more than 100 years? this prayer meeting was about solving their community problems and six months into uh, from the beginning of this prayer meeting zinzendorf met a former slave who was looking for missionaries who would travel to the west indies to evangelize uh, slaves that had been taken there so he went back to the moravians and shared this with the praying um, group and 26 moravians stepped forward the next day to volunteer to go to the world uh, to world missions to the west indies greenland turkey And Lapland. And in time, this became the systematic output of this prayer meeting. They got maps of the world and they began to pray for countries of the world and groups of people and places where different languages were spoken. And that this prayer meeting became a prayer meeting for praying for missions to the whole of the world. And bear in mind, this is this is the 18th century where to get to places was was took long and arduous journeys to get there. So strong was their commitment that some of these Moravians who were still teenagers voluntarily sold themselves into slavery so that they could get access to groups of people that hadn't heard about Jesus. What a movement. Birthed in prayer. I think G2 is called to something to do with being a movement in God's plan. A movement, of course, never can detract from local. I think there's only credibility for us to do others, some things to help others, if we're actually putting it in practice here where we are. If there's a home base called G2, where we're living this out as a local church, doing the things that local churches do. But, and movement and lo- local go together. It's not that they're separate things, but they sort of go together hand in glove. They, they overlap. There's a bit in the middle where you're not quite sure if it's local or if it's movement, but the movement is energized by the local home base. And it's through the movement that other things are started and brought into life in other places. If, if as a church we just focus on local, the problem is that we can just become a holy club where we end up pursuing a vision that's ultimately about what we would most like to have for us. If we, if we give ourselves increasingly to thinking about church also as a movement for the benefit of others, then our focus is on not what we keep for ourselves, but what we can give away. We're already doing some of this now, but it's little beginnings For example, Miriam and I, we we do training at theological colleges, and we talk about working with millennials and evangelism and and stuff like that. Uh, Miriam mainly, but others are getting involved. We're helping with churches in Middlesbrough, helping them with mission and with connecting with students. Um, I'm involved with helping the diocese. They want to start 14 new churches that particularly reach people between the ages of 20 and 50, the so-called kind of missing generation so I'm helping them with some of their recruitment and their interviewing Um, and also as we think ahead to G2 and the 345 service moving to Burnham we want to be really good neighbours to the other churches that are there and so I'm speaking to all of the four Anglican churches that sort of will surround where we'll be meeting at the community hub Uh, and I'm saying to them how can we help you is there anything we could do that could be a help to you and I've met with two so far and both have asked us can we help them with things and they're things that we can help them with and we want to help them with and our aim I think is to raise up a church that is ready to go that it has that desire built into it to be a going church so for example raising up and releasing leaders is not to fill our rotor though that's helpful but is ultimately so that we can send people who are trained, equipped, and ready to go to Brazil or to go to Middlesbrough or to go to the church next door or to go to another city or wherever God might call us. So what are we going to do about this? Well, at the moment, it's a bit of a blank canvas, and you're going to get a chance in a second just to have a little chat about it. Part of this is timed, I think, with our moving from being part of St. Michael of Belfry, so sort of tucked in under there, to coming into this direct relationship with the diocese. I think part of that is not just that we carry on in a different legal structure, but also we give ourselves to increasingly serving and helping others where that help is needed and to to be involved in resourcing other churches. So, for example, I meet with uh, Ben Doolin, who was here a few months ago announcing he's going to Newcastle, and there's already a few people at G2 who are thinking they would like to go with Ben to help him in planting that church. So I think more of that will happen as we um, move forward into our sort of new relationship and into our two different sites. It's not an area where you can make a five-year plan. It's not that kind of thing. The Moravians, when they met to pray, had no plan. All they did was just, they just gave themselves to God. They just started where they were and asked God, what did God want to do with them? And actually, these doors in in this story, and and probably almost any other story you might read, often are doors that you can't plan. The the Jews in Acts chapter 8 couldn't plan that persecution was coming, And that would be God's way of moving them into other places. But they were open, prayerful, and ready to be sent out. So who knows what God might do? I I personally think just the first thing we should say we definitely should do is we should start meeting regularly to pray to see what God wants to say to us. And from there, see what God wants to lead us into. Thank you.
1: Amazing. So I'm getting married uh, in four weeks' time, uh, which is exciting. That always gets a cheer. That always gets a cheer. It's great. And uh, one of the things that I find interesting in reflecting on marriage and relationships is uh, you don't often share some of the private conversations and discussions you have. Uh, But I thought today, I want to let you into a private conversation that I had with Sarah, my fiancé, in May last year. And we've got a little picture here, that um, a little message exchange that I had. Wrong slide wrong PowerPoint, that I had, Um, there we that was a message we talked about, no, here we go, boom. So here we go, here's some kiss emojis from me, first thing in the morning, I'm a smooth man, Tuesday morning, Sarah's replied, and she had a dream in the night, so Sarah had a dream that we raised money uh, for Leo's flight, Leo is uh, the boyfriend, now fiance, of our friend Annabelle, who some of you may know. Uh, We had a dream that we raised money for Leo's flights by asking around close friends. Some gave like 20 quid, others gave 100 quid. That was my dream. And uh, what ended up happening was we actually asked loads of people in G2 and beyond uh, through our kiss emojis uh, to give money to to us to help us finance uh, these flights for for Annabelle and Leo. And uh, in March of this year, Annabelle flew over to Brazil. And uh, her and Leo got engaged, and they're getting married later this year. And uh, I don't tell you that to advertise myself as an intercontinental dating service. Uh, but what I want to tell you is there's something really fascinating about um, vision and how vision calls people and innovates people in, in how we give. So we're motivated to give and we believe in giving because we have a vision, because of the stuff that we've heard today. We give through faith. We give because we have a vision. These people that gave to us had a vision to see Annabelle and Leo connect, having not seen each other for 18 months due to a long-distance relationship. And uh, that was incredible to see. And uh, that's really, for me, kind of changed my perspective on generosity in that you see people giving £5, £50, £100 in faith, believing that altogether it will add up to be able to finance this thing. There's quite a bit big ask to ask a whole bunch of people to, give to pay for a random Chilean to come over to UK, vice versa. But praise God we got there. So I'm talking today a bit about generosity and at the thought that's going through my head this week as we talk about vision, as we talk about big picture, is that generous people give to see the impossible become possible. And I want to talk to you a bit about Matthew 14. So I'm going to get this up on the slide uh, behind us. And I'm just going to read you through uh, Matthew 14, verse 14, 17, and then 18 to 21. So this is all about the feeling of the 5,000. A very famous story, as, as we know. So when Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them and he healed the sick. As evening approached, his disciples came to him and said, this is a remote place and it's already getting late. Send the crowds away so they can go to the villages and buy themselves some food. Jesus replied, they do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. We have here only five loaves of bread and two fish, they answered. Ooh. Anyway, basically what happens is they end up feeding everyone with these two loaves and these fish. And you know the rest. But what I find fascinating about this story is that this story starts with a little boy coming to disciples and giving them his meager lunch. Giving them not very much that he had at all. A few loaves and fishes to feed 5,000 mouths. But gifts, what we have, what we contribute, what we bring in God's hands can be and often are divinely multiplied to meet the demands of greater works. This is one of the greatest ever stories of giving that we'll read in the Bible and that we'll hear in, in culture. Uh, and it's a beautiful picture of what it, what it needs in the faith to see something profound happen through our giving. This boy had faith that the, what he was bringing would make a difference. The disciples didn't have a clue what was going on, but Jesus believed that these, this gift that he brought would help feed people, would provide for them. This young man had the faith to give his lunch away, risking his own provision, his own sustenance, his own comfort, his own hunger, in the hope of helping others. One boy's faith is what set in motion this amazing miracle. And we have to be willing, I think, as people, as a people who follow God, to believe in something much greater, to imagine something much greater than ourselves in order to get behind a project or a vision. And uh, growth costs something. This vision that Christians talked about last week and this week, it all costs something. And I think growth in every element of life costs something. If you want to have a bigger kitchen, if you want to have a nicer lounge, you've got to pay for extension. That costs a lot of money, causes a lot of inconvenience. If you want to have a bigger family, that's going to cost you a heck of a lot of money to buy new clothes, to buy a bigger car, all that sort of thing. If you want to get big muscles, you've got to pay for a gym membership. You've got to buy protein shakes. It costs a lot of money. And a church that is committed to growing, a church that's committed to giving away things, sending people away, will have scalable costs that go up and up and up as we kind of build our muscles we extend our house. And I kind of wanted to throw up some examples on the the screen behind us of uh, what it would look like for us to build an extension at G2. So if we gave 500 extra quid, We could afford an extra Mars bar per student, as we saw last week. Our current budget buys us a Mars bar a month per student, which is amazing. But 5,000 pounds, suddenly we think, hang on a sec, an extra 5,000 pound, that could fund an apprenticeship year for G2 to help start these community projects we're talking about, to help resource student work, youth work, kids work, that sort of thing. 10,000 pounds could fund a whole new site, could help fund a school of church partnering by releasing more time, by finding a venue, that sort of thing. 15,000 pounds, could get some detached youth work, some midweek outreach to families in our community, help finance some significant community projects. 250,000 pounds, we could buy or rent our own building to have a community hub, buy our own version of Burnheim. And 54 million pounds would buy me a new private jet, just like Jesse Duplantis, who you may have seen in the last couple of weeks, has asked his followers to fund him a 54 million pounds private jet. Because in his words, if Jesus was here today, he wouldn't be on a donkey. So he wants a private jet to travel the world we're not asking for a private jet you know we're not talking about that level of things we we're, we're wanting money to help finance a vision to help finance this vision of reaching our our community and beyond this concept of church as movement that means that uh, generosity releases uh, kind of a sense of increase and in energy of this church as we seek to see growth as we seek to see the revitalization of the church and the transformation of society and society needs this the church of england needs this we have a situation in in our country where uh, we estimate 90% of Anglican churches in this diocese, this grouping of churches, will close in 15 years. Uh, in the census uh, of 2011 in York, 59% of people uh, identified as Christian. Obviously, that's nominal Christian, so it's not necessarily going to church on a Sunday everything. But that's even down from 74% in 2001. And I reckon in 2021, we'll be hitting 30 40%. That wouldn't be surprising at all. Uh, in the UK, just 20% of 16 to 30-year-olds identify as Christian and we see mental health problems, loneliness, inequality, inequality, all kinds of social issues all on the up. But spiritual revival gives birth to societal transformation. And that's why we're talking about movement. That's why we're talking about G2 being something beyond these four walls, being something beyond our Sunday gatherings, because we believe in this idea as church's movement to bring revival, to bring transformation to our society, to give people a hope and a, and, and a purpose to their lives where actually, They don't have that as much anymore. We want to be pioneering in that. We want to be leading the way in that as G2. And when we talk about giving today, when we talk about financing this vision, uh, we're looking at this as an investment opportunity. We're looking at something that's a development fund. We're not saying here's a five-year plan, mapping it out. But we're saying we believe that as G2 we're called to play a role in this, to play a role in helping bring revitalization and transformation, to be a church and a movement that both resource and energize each other at the same time. And the mark of movements is that through the grace of God, the unmerited, undeserving favour of God, that we make the impossible become possible. We look outward with a vision to transform our community. And I want to encourage you to too, that what's in your pocket can make this happen. Uh, God isn't interested in your, in your bank account. Uh, he's interested in your faith. He's interested that you'd be sold out in your heart for him. And you'd be so assured that the investment to extend the house isn't just financially but it's all of your life. It's all that you carry. It's your hospitality. It's who you have around for dinner. It's how you talk about Jesus in your job. It's how you carry yourself in your job. But we do need to realize that this does cost money to extend our house. It does cost money to to finance this movement, to see this growth happen that we want to want to be seeing. And I've been really challenged this week um, myself in my own giving to G2. And like I said, getting married in a few weeks and thinking, how do we then kind of combine our salaries and how do we give generously? And 10 percent, that's a helpful thing that I've stuck with. But um, the 10% tithing is a really good, valuable system, is a really good measure. But I just want to challenge you to, to not limit your generosity by sticking to 10%. To not saying, I only give 10% because I read that in, in, in Malachi. Uh, just to encourage you, God wants us to give cheerfully and joyfully. He's, he's saying, yes, give 10%. Yes, give your first fruits. But actually, give as he's called you to give in your heart. Don't limit what he wants to say for you. Don't shut off the conversation by saying, I've given 10%. That's fine. God wants to kind of provoke us, I think, to generosity through the gift of faith. As we saw with us raising money for Annabelle and Leo's flights, as we saw with uh, all these stories uh, of generosity we heard last week, it comes to people having faith through believing in a vision. We don't want to close ourselves off to what God has to say to us about money. Matthew 14, the story of the young boy with his, his fish and his bread, it cost him something. It cost him something of himself in order to see God move. It cost himself something, his own food, his own meal to see a miracle happen. But he had faith for it. And in a minute, we're going to um, just make, spend some time reflecting, spend some time praying about this together. And I kind of want to encourage you this week, um, take a moment, an unbroken moment in your week to, to just ask God about your giving, to ask him what he wants to say to you about G2 and beyond, about what it is that you could be giving uh, either regularly or as a one-off. What is it that, uh, that God might say to you t- to stop doing, to stop spending money on in order to give to something bigger than yourself? What, what's it going to cost you to give into what God's doing through this church? take a moment this week and we're going to take a moment now just to allow ourselves to be moved, allow ourselves to let God in, to not kind of close ourselves off because we've given the 10% and we've ticked a box, but to allow God to speak to us. So if you just want to just close your eyes and just uh, get in that kind of space of response and just focus right now, Uh, I'm going to pray for us that um, the Bible promises us in uh, 1 Corinthians the gift of faith. So I just pray that as we approach this concept of big vision, big, huge vision for societal transformation, and a revitalization of the church, that God would give us the gift of faith, to know our role to play in this, to know what it means for us to be generous with our time, with our money, with our service. So Holy Spirit, I thank you that you are with us. I thank you that you give us so much. I thank you that you provide for us so much. I thank you for the story of this church in the last 13 years of how you've come through for us. And I thank you, God, for the people in this room, of how you've provided for them, how you've come through for them in times of struggle and strife. And Jesus, I pray uh, for the gift of faith to be released to G2. When it comes to talking about big vision, when it comes to thinking about generosity and money that costs us something, Jesus, would you give us the gift of faith to respond as you call us to do, to respond as you're telling us to. Not through setting our own limits, not through deciding it in our own heart, but to give cheerfully and joyfully as you call us to do. Amen.